So growing up, um, we had certain holidays in America. I mentioned this in the newsletter if you happen to see that blurb already. If not, this, we might see just how clever you are, how well you know American culture. Um, can you list, perhaps, what are the four most important holidays for those of us who lived in America? Okay, Thanksgiving is a big one, right? Okay. Fourth of July, I heard, good? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it, Labor Day and Memorial Day are similar there as they, to, to here at Anzac Day and that sort of thing. Um, but, of course, Christmas and Easter, right? We share those in common. So the two that are particularly different are, are 4th of July, which, of course, is a celebration of the independence. That's kind of like, or not, uh, it's like Australia Day, and, um, and then Thanksgiving. Uh, I grew up enjoying Thanksgiving so much, not just because of the wonderful food, though. There's no denying that was a factor. But our family would get together with this other family in our church. It was really our tradition. This other family had this beautifully uh, long, large, open floor plan from their kitchen into a dining room. And so they could line up tables in there and have a really just a nice long table. And so they and we and then inevitably one or two other families would come together. And we spent the entire day there, right? We would get up early in the morning, we'd get food that we were taking and contributing and, and go there, and, and, and people would just go to work setting everything up, getting everything laid out on the table and everything like that, and we would finally have our, our lunch feast until we were kind of were all feeling a little bit ill because we ate too much because there was so much wonderful food. And so we'd have to sit back for a second and talk for a while and just kind of enjoy the fellowship, and then things would kind of, uh, the food would get kind of put away. And some of the kids, you know, we, we as kids, we'd go out and we'd be playing in the backyard or playing, you know, sh- shooting hoops on the, on the driveway or, or back in the bedroom playing card games or something like that. And uh, so people would bring out the rook cards and all that sort of stuff and sit out on the table and just, and just have a great time fellowshipping until finally the, uh, the food coma set in and everybody just started falling asleep wherever they were. And then when they roused from their naps then it was time to get the food out again. It's time to make a turkey sandwich now, and it's time to you know, warm up some more of that stuffing and cranberries and, and all those things that are part of the, of the meal, and then we'd have a nice dinner, and there'd be some more talk and some more games. And then, at, at this time, every year on Thanksgiving evening, the sound of music was played on television. And so we would sit and watch the sound of music till late. It was a special, beautiful day. Something really to look forward to. But we were always reminded, because these were all believing families, they're all Christians, we always took time when we sat down to our feast, to our Thanksgiving feast, to remind ourselves and each other why we had such a day, why we had such a feast. We as children couldn't grow up thinking this was just about food and family and friends. We knew that this was because we needed to remember the way that God had blessed the people who had come to that country by providing for them to survive their first year. They had come particularly to seek greater religious freedom, the ability to worship God according to their conscience. And so they came, but then they were not prepared for this unfamiliar land. They didn't know how to survive here. And so the first winter, so many died from sickness and from exposure to the cold and everything like that. And it was only because of Native Americans in the area who came alongside and befriended these strangers, these invaders, as it would seem, and taught them how to survive 
in this environment. Taught them what would grow there, corn or maize. Taught them about this really strange-looking, fat, waddling bird, the turkey, and that that was good for food, and, and so on. And the, so they helped them make it through that first year and to plant their first set of crops. And then when harvest came from that first year of those things that had been planted and prepared and grown and everything like that, then the European settlers and the Native Americans came together bringing food gifts, and they had a fellowship meal. And this was the Thanksgiving dinner. This was when they came together, and those who had come as Christians shared that they believed all the provisions are ultimately from God, and they wanted to thank Him for them. So that was an important memorial that was established at that time, and that was passed on from generation to generation, so that I, too, benefited from it by the time I came along as a child. And so I will always remember God's blessing that established a nation. That's not to say the nation's done all the things right that they should do to honor God and all of his blessings, but there's much for which to be thankful, and we're reminded of that. Well, Israel was given a similar event, and that's what we come to in our study in Leviticus chapter 23. We see that there was an important memorial feast day that God established for the people of Israel for that very same purpose That was to make sure that from generation to generation it was not forgotten that God is the one who established them as a nation, that he is the one who delivered them from the slavery that they were caught in before for so long, and that he is the one that gave them land and made them a nation. And so they were to never forget that it was by God's hand of blessing that they existed as they did. And so this day was very important for that purpose. But there was also something else. There was something that God embedded in this day from its very beginning that was not just memorial, not just commemoration, but there was also a foreshadowing involved in it. Something that the people of Israel didn't even really fully understand at the time when they celebrated this feast year after year. They didn't really know the significance of the symbols in this feast until much later. And then those who recognized Jesus for who he is as their Messiah were able to connect the dots. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to see how... um, In this passage, we just have the simple command to observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which go together, And but we're going to talk about the significance of them. First of all, we're going to see, uh, this is referred to as Pesach. In the the Hebrew uh, terminology, they refer to the feast today as Pesach. Now, the dinner itself, specifically sitting down to eat the Passover dinner, is called the Seder, but the celebration of the whole week with the Passover with the week of unleavened bread is called Pesach. So let's look at the text here. Leviticus chapter 23. We looked before at the beginning of the chapter there where the Lord spoke to Moses and said, now these are the important feast days. These are the days of convocation uh, that I'm appointing for you. And, And we talked about the Sabbath before, which is the weekly holy day. Now we come to verses 4 through 8, where we read about Pesach, though that word is not used in the text specifically. It says, These are the appointed feasts, verse 4, feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. That's just another subheader for this and others that follow. 
Verse 5, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. That's referring specifically to the meal. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. But you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So we have kind of Sabbaths that are instituted on both ends of this holy week. <clears throat> so there's a convocation as, as, as in a, a worship gathering of the people. And there's the feast that, then that starts this off. And then you have another holy gathering, another worship time at the end of it. And on those two days, the first and the last of this week, there were Sabbath days. There were rest days. In between, there were still to be offering up sacrifices, special offerings every day of the week that were part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, acknowledging God's gifts and provision for them. They might do some of their ordinary work, but it was supposed to be minimized. They were only supposed to really focus on preparing the food that they needed to eat for the day. <clears throat> so this was a special time. Now, the feature of the, unleavened, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was particularly eating nothing with leaven in it whatsoever. So let's just look at it briefly, a little more, let's zoom in a little bit. First of all, we see the Passover, particularly verses uh, 4 and 5, or specifically verse 5. We see uh, the first month. So when it's first established, and we'll read the text in a moment, this is, God said, this will be now the month in which the Passover takes place. This is going to be for you the first month of the year for you. So he established kind of a new calendar for the people of Israel. And the 14th day was the day upon which they were to sacrifice the lamb and eat this special meal. And it was eaten with unleavened bread, which was, we see, as, as a symbol of sin because of its ability to spread so quickly and have such a dramatic effect. God chose to use that as a symbol of, of sin. And they were to eat it with bitter herbs, which are a symbol or a reminder of the bitterness of slavery. So the Passover feast was, had these three particular elements. Now more has been added over the years, over the centuries. More tradition has been packed onto that. I'm not going to go through all of that. I really want to stick to this text. But it is a very interesting study. And I've had the privilege of being part, uh, partic participating in several Seder suppers, uh, some with um, Jewish non-believers in Chicago. I was just invited as a guest because it's kind of one of their traditions to, to you know, bring on sometimes somebody, one of the goyim, one of the, one of the non-Jewish people, uh, just to kind of show off. But they were not Orthodox Jewish people. They were more socially and traditionally uh, Jewish people. And so uh, Angela and I both were invited uh, on a couple of occasions to participate with them as they did their Seder. And that was very interesting. And they go through all of the add-on things. They have, a, they have a whole book that they go through, of course, from back to front, because it's the order in which Hebrew is usually done. And so they go through all these different elements that have been uh, added to it. Now, it's interesting that through the years, these elements have been added on. And a lot of people today, you could ask them, now, why did that get, become part of the supper? And they might talk a little bit about tradition and who started it or so on like that if they're very knowledgeable. But it's interesting that 
they can't really explain, you know, some of the things are just a little bit weird, the Offie Coleman and things like that. It's like, oh, well, we've just always done this, and, and, and yet in God's sovereignty, he has embedded, I think, many things there that still actually foreshadow Jesus as the Messiah. They just don't recognize that. So if, we, if you have an opportunity to, um, to sit at a Seder supper that is, that is presented by believing Jewish people or people who are involved in ministries of Jewish people, so I have some friends, Angie and I have very dear friends who are with the ministry Friends of Israel, and they, they actually travel sometimes and present, put on a whole dinner where the whole church sits around tables and go through the meal together, and they explain the symbolism, all these things. It's a wonderful event. But the original Passover, the, the most basic and most critical command for the Passover is the lamb, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs. But then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is really a festival. Feast kind of sounds like it's another meal, but it's really kind of a festival. It's the week-long festival of continuing to eat nothing with leaven in it. And it's a reminder of, of the time when the people of Israel at the, at the Passover, which of course took place as the 10th plague in Egypt, God delivered them, and he told them to prepare unleavened bread. In his wisdom, the practical side of it was they were about to be taking off and traveling, and they were going to be getting out in the wilderness for a while, and the unleavened bread would last longer than leavened bread. But there is significant symbolism involved in that, and we'll see it when we read the original event. It was a whole week of eating nothing with leaven, and it was marked at both ends by that holy convocation. But both were established at the time of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. That's point C on the next slide. And we'll see that in Exodus chapter 12. So I invite you to go there in your own text with me. I, it's a long passage. It's not on the slides. So in whatever copy of Scripture you have, please join me at Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 1 through 28, where we see the original occasion. So it's a lengthy enough passage, but we really need to see all of what's there that is the antecedent of this, of this passage we're in in Leviticus. So Exodus 12, verses 1 through 28, this is the people of Israel still enslaved in the land of Egypt. God has demonstrated his power over Pharaoh and all of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, the whole Egyptian pantheon, he has systematically dismantled their faith in these gods because he has sent these plagues that flew right in the face of their various gods. The frogs you know, were, were an insult to one of their Egyptian gods and so on, and that's another different study that I won't get into now, but, but they were very purposeful, very intentional plagues that demonstrated that the one true and living God is greater than these gods that they had invented in their system of belief. So now we're coming to the tenth plague. And, and it's interesting that already God has protected his people, Israel, from many of the plagues, many things that affected the rest of Egypt, did not affect the Israelites in the land where they were. But now this was going to be a thorough sweeping uh, impact in this plague and there was only one way to escape it. Just being Jewish wasn't going to be good enough. You had to really obey in faith the instructions that God gave. It was very specific. And once again, to the, to the people of Israel, this must have been, if you can imagine yourself in their shoes, on this occasion, you, you might ask, well, why would God ask us to do that? Why is that specifically what's going to protect us 
from this plague. If, you, if you've never seen these things before, and you put yourself in that situation, you're like, really, why unleavened bread? Why bitter herbs? Why take this lamb and bring it to the house for four days before, before sacrificing it, and so on? Why? So here it is. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months, establishment of that calendar. And it shall be the first month of the year for you. And tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So there's a sensibility there that God built in, right? But it's basically a lamb per family, unless your family's too small, join up with another smaller family and, and make sure that you have the appropriate portions for everyone. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. Perfect. A male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. We already saw that mention of that timing in the Leviticus passage. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So the doorposts are the up and down, the vertical posts on either side of the door, the lintel is the cross beam at the top. So they're to apply blood on both sides and at the top. Do not eat any of it, or sorry, verse uh, 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, you would ask yourself, why am I dressed for outside and for travel to eat this meal? Why, you know, to put the belt on, that implies you put your outer cloak on, you put your belt on around to close it, and you've got your sandals on. You usually wouldn't wear the sandals in the house. You would step in and you would take the sandals off and you'd have your feet washed and, and you certainly wouldn't eat a meal with your shoes on. How rude. Uncouth. Right? So this is an odd bit of instruction from God. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am, and the word there is Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So that blood on the doorposts and on the lintel was critical. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day. 
And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from... Uh, leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt." Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Now, in the, month, in the first month, from the 14th day of the month that evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner, so a stranger, a foreigner, or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. So that's really stressed twice there, isn't it? Right in the row. Verse 21, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Now, this, is, this instruction is added on here. I assume God actually told Moses and it just wasn't, you know, given in the previous description of that conversation, but now we see through Moses' instructions that there was a little bit more to it. He says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Now, he doesn't say paint the whole thing, but you touch some at the top, touch some on the two sides with this hyssop. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Once that blood is applied, you stay under the cover of the blood until the judgment is passed. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? In other words, why do we do this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So there we have the first event upon which this Pesach is based from that point forward for the people of Israel. So it seems perhaps a strange ritual that protected the obedient from God's judgment. But it was declared on the very first occasion to be an event to be commemorated. So God had his purposes, whether they were understood fully or not. So remember these elements, right? There's the, there's the lamb, had to be perfect, year old, male, and it was even brought in to be protected and nurtured for a few days before it was being offered up. The blood of this lamb was to be applied to the household, and it was touched on each side 
and at the top. By the way, what happens when liquid is exposed to gravity? It's going to drip. So what image do you see with blood there and there and there and there? There was a significant foreshadowing of the cross, even in this. Would, this, would the Israelites have understood that? That that's why God said, touch both doorposts and the lintel with this blood of the lamb? Of course, they didn't know what a, a cross was yet. That wasn't anything that they understood. So there were things embedded in this. The use of hyssop, why was that significant? Why should this be done this way? Well, that's because the Pesach was not only a memorial for the people of Israel to remember that God was the one who delivered them in a very unique way from Egypt's slavery, but it was also a foreshadowing of the deliverance from sin's slavery for not only the Israelites, but for all who would benefit from that by faith. So we see the Pesach as a memorial to deliverance from Egypt's slavery for the people of Israel, but we also see Pesach as a foreshadowing of deliverance from sin slavery for us. So we see, first of all, Jesus as the Lamb of God. What were these key elements? Well, we had the, the Passover lamb, and you had the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. Well, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is certainly declared as such. It's not just our imagination. It's not like we decided to make some sort of a convenient connection, but we do have it in the text of Scripture. We have uh, the identification of Jesus as the Lamb, as the Passover Lamb. Uh, first of all, it's declared by John the Baptist in Jesus' very presence, and Jesus did not object to John's declaration. So we, have, so we have Jesus believing himself to be the Lamb of God. He was declared by John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, if you wish to go there, John chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, we see John the Baptist, he's ministering, he's, he's calling people to baptism, to repentance, and then he lets people know that, now I'm just pointing to, towards someone else. I'm just preparing you for someone else. I'm not the main event. The, the Pharisees came out and questioned him. Messengers of the Pharisees come and say, who are you? Are you supposed to be the Messiah? Are you supposed to be Elijah come back? Are you, who are you? And, and, and he says, I'm, the, I'm the, the, the crier. I'm the, the one who runs before and declares the king who's coming, the Messiah. And so he says in verse 26, John chapter 1, uh, John answers them, said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, in other words, look everyone, the Lamb of God. Now what an odd title to give a person. The Lamb. What? A lamb? He looks like a man to me. The Lamb of God? What's the significance of a statement like that? The Lamb of God, well, he explains, who takes away the sins of the world. 
The thing is, none of the lamb sacrifices really took away people's sin. They knew that it was a covering. They used the word for atonement. They understood that the, the blood sacrifice was a covering for their sin, and that it was a substitute taking, the, taking on itself the, the judgment that they deserved for their sin against holy God. They knew that it was, it was temporary because they had to keep bringing these lambs. So now this was really significant that John the Baptist would identify a person as the lamb provided by God himself, and this lamb would not just cover sin for a while, but this one would remove it. This would take away the sins. The guilt would be gone from one sacrifice. And it's interesting because he... Then it says, this is he of whom I said, after me, this is kind of ironic, the way he says this in a, in a way, right? It's, uh, or paradoxical, perhaps. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. The one who's following me is actually from before me, he says. Now, it's, now we know that John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. Elizabeth, the one that Mary ran to visit when, when Gabriel said, you're going to be blessed by the Holy Spirit and child is going to be born. And just kind of as a demonstration of God's power to do miracles, by the way, your cousin Elizabeth, who has passed the years of childbearing, is now already well into her pregnancy. And so Mary got up and took off and went and saw Elizabeth. And remember, the child in her womb leaped at the sound of her voice, and Elizabeth prophesied and said, how is it that the mother of my Savior would come to visit me? So John the Baptist was older. He was born before Jesus. So how is it that he says that he is from before me? John the Baptist understood Jesus not to be a normal man, but to be God from heaven who came to satisfy the sacrificial need for sin once and for all, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. The, we also see this affirmed by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, at this moment he's kind of scolding some bad behavior amongst the believers of the church in Corinth. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now here we have, he refers to the whole symbol of leaven as a symbol of sin as well. Now the the boasting was, uh, Corinth was a very pagan, really, truly vile society. And they worshipped through prostitution. They worshipped through pagan orgies, and so on. And so it was a wicked place. Well, now, some of these people in the church of Corinth thought that they were being sophisticated by being tolerant of some of these practices that were known to be taking place amongst some of the people in the church. They were still practicing some of these, you know, things that were part of the culture. And the fact that they were tolerant of these things, they thought, now see, we are a sophisticated church. You know, 
We are, we are not so bigoted. We are, we are not so small-minded. And Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that just a little leaven, a little sin, spreads and infects everything, leavens the whole lump. So cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. So just like those, the, the, the people of Israel were to remove all leaven from their house, they were to scour the house. They did a thorough spring cleaning sort of, a, sort of thing and made sure that there was none there in advance at the beginning. And Paul is using that imagery saying, get rid of it. Take it out from amongst you. You need to be a fresh, unleavened group. For Christ, he says, our Passover lamb. See how Paul identifying Jesus Christ exactly as the Passover lamb, our Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So now Christians are called to live in an unleavened way. So we see very clearly in the words of Paul, Jesus identified with the Passover lamb and sin being identified as the object of the symbol of leaven. It was established before. And uh, we see this also affirmed by the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter in First Peter chapter 1 Verses 18 and 19 is now encouraging believers who are living under stress for their, for their testimony and for their faith. They're being pressured. He says, uh, carry on, basically, be courageous and continue knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways that were inherited from your forefathers. So he's saying, the religious activities that had been passed on to you, they were actually futile. They were actually empty. They were unable to ultimately save your soul. You've been ransomed from that. You've been delivered from that. So those things were inherited from your fathers. But, so you were, you were ransomed not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. So once again, Peter identifying Jesus Christ as God's Passover lamb who provides the once-for-all ransom, that rescue that people need. So we see in these passages Jesus as the lamb of God. We also see there leaven as the symbol of infectious sin. Now, New Testament believers are called upon to remove it. Just as the Old Testament believers of Israel were during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so that's why those two things come together, because we have the sacrifice of Christ that deals with the guilt of sin, but then coupled with that is the responsibility of the believer to live in accordance to that. We've been, we've been rescued from the slavery of sin. Our, our sin guilt has been atoned for. It's been covered but we still have a responsibility living in this sin-cursed world to keep the sin out of our lives. And so you see that feast lasted for a whole week. That's to convey the fact that this is an ongoing thing. Yes, you had your Passover meal, and you were protected from God's wrath through that event, but there's still this ongoing responsibility of avoiding sin. 
And so you had that week-long exercise of not eating anything leavened as a reminder of that truth. And we are called upon to observe that in that way to keep the leaven out of our lives spiritually. That doesn't mean you can't eat fluffy bread today. That's the symbol. Now, the two have always been linked, the atoning sacrifice with the call to be rid of sin. And then we see that the blood as is the protection from God's wrath. That application of blood by hyssop to the doorframe created an image. Now, it's interesting. Now, I, don't know, I can't assign too much significance to it, but it is interesting that they were told to use hyssop in that first event to apply the blood. And then we see that Christ was offered hyssop on the cross because there's an extract from its leaves that was a, a painkiller. And so that was, that was a thing that was offered to him with vinegar. And so, once again, I just suspect that it was just another little hint that God was giving, you know, pointing to the event so that when Christ's sacrifice came, when his death on the cross, cross took place, there were these multiple points of connection where people could see, ah, this is about the Passover. This is about God's rescuing people by the blood of a lamb, only now we have the blood applied on a cross now we have the lamb provided by God himself. Now we have one who himself is entirely unleavened. He's never sinned. And he stands in our place. And just as it was the blood applied at the Passover that protected people from God's wrath over sin and rebellion, today it's the blood applied that protects a person from God's wrath for sin and rebellion. So anyone, Egyptian or Israelite, who failed to apply the blood and to accept its protection, they suffered the loss. Their firstborn all died in that household. The firstborn males amongst the people and even their animals died in that one night simply by failing to accept the provision that God offered. doesn't matter how strange it seemed. God said, do this, apply the blood, stay under the cover of the blood, and you will be saved. And today, God offers the same thing for anyone. Put yourself under the cover of the blood of the cross, and you are safe. That's why we Christians use that word saved, right? When a person is saved, it means that they have been rescued from the slavery of sin. They have been rescued from the wrath of God for sin because he's a just God and must judge it. And so we can be saved by applying the blood of Jesus Christ to our lives, by accepting that coverage. It's so important that each person make that choice to do so. Because failure is all it takes. Failure to take the cover, failure to accept the protection is all it takes to remain in line with God's wrath. Anyone, Egyptian or Israelite, who didn't apply the blood suffered the price. So it is today. It doesn't matter how good a person is. It doesn't matter how much they've given to charities or to churches or how often they've attended church. 
That doesn't matter. If the blood has not been applied, there is no protection from God's wrath. Every individual must make that personal choice to accept the coverage, the protection of the blood that came from that Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and Him alone. Whether it seems an odd way for God to save people or not, it's the obedience of faith to do what God has said and trust that He will do His part. He says, you do this, I will save you, then you have to accept that and act accordingly. So these are the final things I'd like you to consider, please. First of all, we who have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf are cleansed permanently from the stain of sin. Good news. Yes, we still struggle with our daily sin, living in a sin-cursed body, in a sin-cursed world, temptation all around us. We still fail. But the good news is, even if I were to just have a sudden stroke and die right here in the pulpit, and I failed to ask God's forgiveness or to acknowledge, to confess whatever I did wrong this morning or last night that I haven't yet confessed, that's not going to prevent me from going to heaven. That sin is actually already forgiven. I'm called upon to confess my sin really as an exercise for myself to be aware and to work on removing the leaven from my life, to acknowledge what I've done wrong and to thank God for His forgiveness. But the forgiveness has already been promised because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the fact that I'm covered by His blood. So even if I fail to confess something before I drop dead, I'm still going to heaven because it's not about me anymore. It's about Christ. Praise God. We see in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, the author of Hebrews says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that's the same word for tabernacle that's, that's used in the Old Testament, translated to Greek, the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, rather he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, like the old rituals, but by means of his own blood as the Lamb of God, thus securing eternal redemption. See, there's the permanence again. The fact that it's once for all, it's eternal redemption. I've been redeemed for good, for all time, for all eternity. Therefore, the other point in the things to consider, therefore, we can relate to God with confidence, right? Because we know we're forgiven. Yes, we're called upon to confess our, to confess our sin, right? But He's always faithful to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's already promised. It's already covered by the blood of Christ, right? So we can... We, we, we feel guilty, we, we've blown it again or something like that. But we don't need to be afraid to approach God. He's always ready to welcome us back. We can approach Him with confidence because we know our standing. We are now His child. It doesn't matter what any of my kids ever do. It doesn't matter, and I pray it doesn't happen. I hope, pray they never do anything truly horrific. But if they do something truly horrific... 
and they come back and say, Dad, I'm sorry. Will you accept me? Just as we read this morning the parable of the prodigal son, I will accept them in an instant. And so is our status with God if we have put ourselves under the blood of Jesus Christ. doesn't matter how horrifically we may blow it. Let's try not to blow it horrifically. But no matter how horrifically we blow it, we are already accepted. We can already approach God with confidence. He will forgive. He will cleanse. He will embrace us as his own. But we also have a responsibility to serve him. We don't use that as license. We don't use that. You know, Paul talked about that. He said, you know, you know everything's lawful for me. Everything's okay for me now, but not everything is profitable for me. So there might be things that, sure, I can be a Christian and do this and still go to heaven, but that doesn't mean I should. You know, should we, should we sin all the more so that grace can just abound all the more, right? Challenge the limits of God's grace. It's like, oh, I know he'll forgive me if I do this. God forbid, Paul says. Right? And so we are challenged to live in a way that is reflective of what God has done for us. And we see that in verses 13 and 14 in the same passage. Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14, he says, just before that, securing an eternal redemption, right? The blood of Jesus secures our eternal redemption. Verse 13, for, now consider the value of what Jesus has done. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, that's referring to the old system in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? So it's not just that covering thing, being sprinkled and made purified so that you can enter the temple worship once again and that sort of a thing that, that was required there. But now he goes beyond just that that relatively shallow level of purification. He purifies even the conscience. He brings us to that place where we know we have a standing before God. We don't have to fear Him. But there's still a little bit more to the statement, right? We have this great benefit to serve the living God. We've been saved to serve Yes, we have great benefits. Yes, we have eternity to look for. Yes, we have wonderful standing before God. But we have a responsibility. We are saved not just to bask in our comfort in our relationship with God. We are saved to serve the living God. How else is He to be represented to all the other people around who do not yet know Him? Will they see a difference in our lives that will intrigue them, that will compel them, that will give them the reason to think that we have something better than what they've got? If we live exactly the same way, if we, find, if we consider ourselves sophisticated because we look so much like the people around us, like the Corinthians did, then what are we demonstrating? What difference has our relationship with God made in our lives? Why should they listen to anything we have to say? We, we do the same things they do, make the same choices, do the same loose things, and look and sound just like them. And then we say, oh, you should believe what I believe. And why should they? 
What difference has it made for you? So we are challenged to continue the process having been covered by the blood of the Lamb of God once for all. We are challenged to continue that deleavening work in our lives. We are to continue to do all that we can to remove the sin. And it's a struggle for all of us, I know. Praise God for the, for the permanence of the standing we have in Christ, but that doesn't mean we give up. It doesn't mean we stop trying. It doesn't mean we don't keep sweeping the house clean. We're called to do that, and that's why those two things are coupled together, the sacrifice of the lamb with the removal of the unleavened bread. And let that be the story of our life as we continue, covered by the blood of the Lamb, continuing to sweep away the leaven. Let's pray that He will help us to do that. Father, we're grateful for, again, for this wonderful thing You have done, this thing that You have planned from before history began, that You would provide a way of salvation, a way of forgiveness and reconciliation for sinful people to You, a holy God. We're grateful for the symbols that you embedded in these events even a few thousand years ago so that when your Savior came, no one was, without ex- no one was with excuse for uh, missing what you have done. We're thankful that we can see that Jesus Christ is that ultimate lamb, that perfect sacrifice that you yourself have provided truly unblemished, truly spotless, and offered up for us that we might be cleansed once for all from the guilt of sin. Help us now, Lord, with the ongoing battle of keeping the sin out of our lives, keeping the leaven out of our house, so to speak, that we would reflect your goodness and your grace and your salvation to the people around us. Let there be a difference in our lives that will cause people to see that we have something that they need. Help us to live in accordance with these great gifts that you have given us. We know that in order to do this, we need to know you better. We need to know your heart, your values, your, your purposes, your plans that much better. And you have revealed yourself to us in your word. So that is the one way we can learn to know you better, the way we can be more reflective of your character. So we pray that you would draw each one of us, give us that hunger, maybe a renewed hunger. Maybe it was once there and it has kind of waned, it has has become less powerful. Help us. Give us that hunger once again. Stir up that appetite for your word. Draw us in that we might know you more rightly, more truly, more intimately, so that our lives can be changed more completely and sincerely to reflect your goodness and grace and love and mercy. Because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.